Well, we are in the uh, book of Psalms this morning, so turn to Psalm 100. Each year at this time, we embark on a series called Psalms in the Summer. And we've been doing this for several years, and today we will be reaching and reading, and we finally reached Psalm 100, which is a very well-known psalm. That means we're now two-thirds of the way through the psalms. There are 150 psalms. We're at Psalm 100. We're exactly two-thirds of the way. At this pace, we will finish all 150 psalms by summer's end in 2018. It's only two years away. That's hard to believe, isn't it? <clears throat> Today, I'm actually going to do something a little different. I'm going to combine two psalms, and you'll see why. So uh, I decided to do this in church. I was listening to the sermon, but I was also going over my lessons, you know what I mean? I don't only do that when the pastor's absent, but sometimes I even do it while he's here, I go over my lesson, you know, while he's preaching. Uh, but I have this ability to hear and read at the same time. I learned that as a child when I was doing my uh, homework in front of a television set. Some of you, anybody like that? Is that how you used to? Joe Lyon used to study that way, you know, in front of the television set. He had, had got constantly D-plus grades throughout high school. And I can attest to, to you also that it works very effectively, about that, that effectively. So uh, this morning I realized, hey, I can actually pull together two psalms, and you'll see how I'm going to do it. And it's so simple. And it'll be obvious once you see it. Okay? So as a reminder... Uh, to those who have been with us from the start, and as an introduction to those who are just beginning with us in our Psalms of the Summer series, let me remind you that Psalms is divided into five major books. Five major books. Remember that? If I asked, you know, Gary to, to just tell me those five major books, he could just tell me off the top of his head. But, you know, he doesn't have a microphone with him. So let me tell you, since I've got the mic, I'll tell you what those five books are. Psalms is divided into five books or five sections. Book number one is Psalm 1 through Psalm 41. That's called Book 1. It's a complete section. Book 2 contains Psalm 42 through Psalm 72. That's Book 2. Book 3, Psalm 73 to Psalm 83. Book 4, Psalm 90, which is attributed to Moses, by the way, to Psalm 106. That's Book 4. Now, what, we're in Psalm 100, so guess what book we're in? We're in Book 4, right? Okay. And then Book 5 goes from Psalm 107 to Psalm 150. Each one of these books or sections ends with a doxology uh, that calls us to praise God. Okay. Now, when you look at the Psalms, you'll discover very quickly that they're not arranged in chronological order. <clears throat> Obviously, if Psalm 90 was written by Moses, Moses precedes David by a couple years, wouldn't you say? Yes, I would say so. So, uh, and yet David writes some of the early Psalms, Moses writes Psalm 90, so these Psalms are not written or arranged according to chronological order, nor are they arranged according to author, you know, or specific themes. Yet, the Psalms in each book have some common denominators or common characteristics. For example, we're in book four. And book four contains several what are known as royal 
or enthronement psalms, which basically speak of God as being the king of the universe. And let me just show you uh, that in book number four. For example, in Psalm 93, look at that, 93.1. Notice how it describes God. It says God reigns. See, he's a king. He reigns. Look at Psalm 95. And look at verse 3. For the Lord is a great God, and he is a great what? King. Do you see that? Over all the other kings. These are the enthronement psalms. These are the royal psalms. Look at Psalm 96, for example. Look down at verse 10. Say among the nations, the Lord what? Reigns. Do you see that? Again, that concept. Psalm 97, verse 1. The Lord reigns. Look at Psalm 98, verse 6. With trumpets and sound of a horn, shout joyfully before the Lord, the God. And look at Psalm 99, and verse 1. The Lord reigns. And now we come to Psalm what? And it tells us how do you respond to a God who reigns. So you can see that uh, within each book there are some common characteristics, and here we see a whole bunch of enthronement psalms. And so Psalm 100 tells us how to respond as believers to this God who reigns. Now before we launch into the psalm, I want you to notice the superscription. We look at two things. First of all, the superscription. The superscription is the title. <clears throat> Not the big title that the publisher puts there, but here's the superscription. A psalm of thanksgiving. Do you see that? That was put there really early on in the psalms. We don't know who gave the superscription, but that was included. And it's, it's included to give you some sort of feeling for the psalm. So notice two things about this superscription. First of all, verses 1 through 5 are called a psalm, which means it's a psalm. So that's telling us the nature of this particular these particular words, they are, they constitute a psalm, which means uh, psalms in, were words that were accompanied by music, by, accompanied by instruments, often sung by a choir. So these would be words that would be sung by a choir, accompanied by instruments. Then I want you to second of all notice that it's called a psalm of thanksgiving. You see that? Psalm of thanksgiving. So this tells us the main theme of the psalm. This psalm is a song of thanksgiving. Okay, so that is the superscription. Next, I want you to notice the structure of the psalm. This psalm, or this song, is divided into two stanzas. Stanza one is verses one through three. That's stanza one. Stanza two, verses four through five. So this psalm has two stanzas. Okay? So let's look at stanza number one. Let's see what, what these words say in stanza one. Look at verse one. Make a joyful shout. Now, the old King James says what? Make a joyful noise. Okay. Um, notice to whom it's addressed. Make a joyful noise to who? To the Lord. Yeah. So that he's the, he is the subject or the object of the shout. This is describing worship. He says, make a joyful noise or a joyful shout to the Lord. This is a call to worship. Verse 1 is a call to worship. Okay? Notice to whom these words are addressed. Make a joyful shout or noise to the Lord. And who is he addressing? All 
you lands, all the nations. So this is a call for the nations, the pagan nations, the heathen nations, to worship God. Okay? Now this is very similar to Psalm 98 in verse 4. Look there. Shout joyfully to the Lord all the earth. So here we see that same idea repeated in Psalm 100 verse 1. Make a joyful shout to the Lord all the lands. In Old Testament times, Israel was responsible to proclaim God to the nations. They were to introduce the nations to God and God to the nations. In New Testament times, it's the church's responsibility to bring the proclamation of God to the nations. Jesus in the Great Commission says, go out and make disciples of all what? All nations. So this is our responsibility in Old Testament times. It was Israel's responsibility. Now, those are the words of verse 1. But this psalm was not written as a lesson to be taught. Now listen to me. Because what we do is we read the psalms, don't we? And we try to find the lessons that's taught in the psalms, right? This psalm was not written as a lesson to be taught. It was written as a song to be what? Sung. Now, once you understand that, that opens the door to a lot of the meaning of this psalm. So what you need to do is you need to picture this in your mind. Here are, here's the nation of Israel. They're being led by their priests. And they're ascending up the hill, up to Mount Zion, where the temple's located. And as they're walking and marching and ascending the hill, guess what they're doing? They're singing. I'm on my way up to Canaan's land. I'm on my way. Can you see them marching? Yeah. Up to Canaan's land, land, land. I'm on my way up to Canaan's land. Singing glory, hallelujah, I'm on my way. Yeah, no way, come on. All that shows you how short this psalm is and how I have to waste some time. Okay, so imagine them marching up toward the temple, and this is the song they're singing. Here's what they're singing. Make a joy, I don't know the tune, but it says, Make a joyful noise or a joyful shout to the Lord, all ye lands. Okay. Now, look at verse 2. Serve the Lord. Now watch. Verse 1 is a call to worship. You see that? Verse 2 is a call to work. You see that? Verse 1 is a call to shout. Verse 2 is a call to serve. To serve the Lord. And the two go hand in hand. Worship and service go hand in hand. Literally, you can't have one without the other. And there's a great big gap, especially in the Western world today, between worship and service. Somehow we can divide those in our minds. But God does not divide those. Remember when Jesus is being tempted by Satan? Satan says, I'll give you the world if you just bow down and worship me. And Jesus says, Thou shalt worship the Lord by God only, and Him serve. Notice how Jesus puts them together. Worship and serve. You cannot separate them. And so the psalmist says we're called to 
worship and we are called to work. We're called to shout and we are called to serve. Now how are we to do this? How are we to serve? Look what it says in verse 2. Serve the Lord with what? Gladness. You have to have a right attitude. You see that? Uh, working for the Lord should not be done grudgingly. Now the fact that he has to say, or the psalm says, serve the Lord with gladness, tells you that gladness is a choice. So we can choose to be happy worshiping the Lord, or we can worship the Lord and we can complain. So gladness, we worship the Lord with gladness. And then look at the rest of verse 2. Come before his presence with singing. We don't only serve him with a right attitude, we're to serve him enthusiastically. So notice this. Verse 1, we shout with joy. Do you see that? Look at verse 2. We serve with gladness. Look at verse 2 and a half. <laughs> we come with singing. Do you see that? We serve with joy. We shout with gladness. We come with singing. Before the Lord. And so this is a call to worship and to serve and to sing to the Lord. Now why should we do these three, these three things? Look at verse 3. Know, or better, knowing, we do it knowing that the Lord, He, is God. Why do you shout? Why do you sing? Why do you serve? Because you know something. You know the Lord. He is what? He's God. That's why you do those things. And this knowing is an experiential knowing. You know it through experience. Do you remember when Elijah confronted the 400 prophets of Baal? And there was a big challenge there. And uh, they sort of were fighting and trying to determine whether Baal is God or whether Yahweh, Jehovah is God. And they're challenging each other. And Elijah comes up with the ultimate test. He said, I want you to put a big bullock on the altar and uh, call for your God, Baal, to send fire down and consume the sacrifice. And if he does, we'll all say that Baal's God. If he does it, then it's my turn. And so you know the story. They put the sacrifice on the altar. The 400 prophets of Baal cry out, Baal, Baal, send fire, send fire. What happens? Nothing happens. They cut themselves. They cry. They weep. They scream. They fall on their knees. Nothing. And now Elijah said, by the way, that lasted for hours. We're going to look at that test in a second. It lasts for hours. And so Elijah said, well, now it's my turn. So he takes the bullock and he cuts it all in pieces. And then he puts it on the altar and puts some wood on there. And then he says to servants, I want you to pour water over the altar. Let's soak this thing. Let's really put this my God to a test. And he says, God, send fire. And it goes, I mean, you can just see that happening. There should be a movie with that as the great scene, you know? So I want you to see what happens as a result. Okay? So I want you to go to 1 Kings. Okay, 1 Kings. God answers by fire. And go to chapter 18. 1 Kings and chapter 18. It's a great story. You need to read it. You need to say how many hours pass by and how fast God answers. And look at down at verse 38. First Kings 18.38. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. 
Now look at the response. Now when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, He is God. Look at this. The Lord, He is God. You see that? Now back to Psalm 100. Look what it says there. The Lord, He is God. So we're to serve, we're to sing, we're to worship. Look at verse 3. Why are we to do it? Knowing what? That the Lord, what? He is God. You see that? You see where David gets it from? He has said that God, from the time of Moses, when he led the people of Israel, the Hebrew children, out of Egypt through the Red Sea by opening the Red Sea, when they saw that, when they experienced that, guess what they said? The Lord, He is God. They experienced when Elijah put the sacrifice on the altar and fire came down. And what did the people say? The Lord, He is God. On what basis did they say that? They knew it because they experienced it. You see that? And we should serve the Lord. We should shout to the Lord. We should sing to the Lord. We should come into His presence knowing that the Lord, He is God. Now look at the word Lord. In verse 3. Same word as in, in 1 Kings. It's Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. From the Hebrew word Yahweh or Jehovah. Two different ways of pronouncing the same Hebrew word, Yahweh or Jehovah. And those of you who have been with us know that when the word Lord is spelled with a capital L, O, R, D in English, it refers to God's covenant name. Remember when God appears to Moses, he says, tell them that I am, that I am sent you. And he uses the word Lord. Tell them the Lord, all caps, sent you. And God uh, revealed himself as Jehovah, or Yahweh, to Moses. And then God brought the people out of Egypt, miraculously, and he entered into a covenant with them. He, he entered into a contract with the Hebrew people. And uh, he made certain promises with them. If you do this, I'll do this. And he said, I'll never break my word. And he always came through. And he said, my name is Jehovah. This is my covenant name. This is my contract. This is the name that I put when I sign a contract with you. Lord, all caps. And my word and my signature is good. So, and guess what? He's always come through. And so here in this song, the Jewish people are calling for the nations to shout and serve and worship this God. Now, should Egypt worship God? Well, I guess they should. Why should they? Because they saw him do what? Open the Red Sea, just like the Jews saw him open the Red Sea. You see that? Should the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, worship God? Sure they should worship God. Why? Because they've seen Him answer with fire. They know He's God. And so this is this call to worship. Does that make sense to you? So that's the first reason we do these three things. Because we know that Jehovah, not Baal, not the gods of Egypt, Jehovah is God. Now there's another thing that we need to know. Look in verse 3. It is he who 
made us and not we ourselves. The Jews understood that God created them. Now, he's not talking about creating the world here. I'm not talking about creation of the world. He's talking about the creation of the nation. He brings the Hebrew children out of Egypt and he forms them, he makes them into a holy nation. And the Jews realized this, that he, he, he intervened on their behalf, he delivered them miraculously out of Egypt, and he has made them. They know that, they experience that. So he is their maker. So, because they've experienced that, we could say this. I think we can say this with 100% assurance. After the exodus and the miracle and God forming the nation of Israel, there was not one Jew who was ever an atheist at that time. Would you agree that no Jew who went through that was an atheist? They know they didn't open the Red Sea, didn't they? So there was no atheist. How, why weren't there any atheists? Because they all experienced the miracles for themselves. So, he is our maker. Now look at the third thing that we need to know. Look at the end of verse 3. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Not only is he our maker, notice this, he is our master. You see that? Not only is he Israel's savior, not only does he deliver them, he is Israel's shepherd. You see that? He cares for them. He protects them. He guides them. He leads them. He cares for them. So, based on this, there's three commands. Shout to the Lord. Serve the Lord. And come sing to the Lord. Knowing that he is God. Alone is God. He is our maker. And he is our master. And you can just hear them singing as they were marching up toward the temple. Man, they would really be singing this out. So these are the words of the song. Does that make sense? Okay. That stanza one. Now let's look at stanza two. Okay. Beginning at verse four. Enter into his gates. How? With thanksgiving. Now notice this. They've now ascended the mountain. They've reached the temple. And guess what they're to do? Now they're going in. <laughs> one is they're marching up. Stanza one. Stanza two. They are what? It's a call to enter in. You see that? How are you to enter in? Enter it in with thanksgiving. And that's the, the uh, superscription. So this is very important, this concept of thanksgiving. And, look at verse four. And into his courts with praise. With praise. Be thankful to him and bless his name. Now notice this. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. And then he says it over again. Be thankful to him. Notice. You see that? Be thankful to him. Enter his gates with thanksgiving. Be thankful to him. Look. Enter his courts with praise. Do what? Bless his name. How do you bless God's name? You praise him. You want to bless somebody? Guess what you just did? Start praising him. God loves to be praised. See that? So, what we have here is we have this parallel between enter his gates with thanksgiving and be thankful to him and enter his courts with praise and bless his name. Okay? So, verse 4. That's a call. It's a call to enter. You see that? That's what we are to do. That's what the song says. 
at the call to enter. Now look at verse 5. The cause for entering. The call to enter, and now the cause. The, 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 the call to enter is what you're to do. The cause is why you're to do it. Verse 4, what you're to do. Verse 5, why you are to do it. The cause. Okay. So look what it says in verse 5. Do this because the Lord is good. It means he's upright. He is pure. He is holy. Uh, were the gods of the nations, what are they? Are the gods of the nations pure and holy and upright? No, the gods of the nations are fickle. The gods of the nations are tricksters. The gods of the nations are like humans. They're made in the image of man. So the first reason we're to enter his gates with thanksgiving and thanking him while we enter the gates and praising him while we enter the gates why do you do those things? Because what? God is good. Okay, now there's a second reason. Look at this. His mercy is everlasting. You see that? His mercy is everlasting. Some translations say his loving kindness. This is a covenant word. The word mercy is a covenant word. And it means loving kindness. It means compassion. It means graciousness. Okay? Uh, God is gracious. He's not only good, but he's, he's kind, he's loving, he's compassionate, he's gracious. Not like the other gods. Other gods are cold, they're harsh, they're stern. You know, that's not how God is. God uh, doesn't give us what we deserve. We all deserve to be punished, but God doesn't give us that. He gives us what we don't deserve. He forgives us. He forgets our sins. God is good. He's not stern. He's good. He doesn't hold grudges. Why not? Because look at the word Lord there in verse 5. How is it spelled? All caps. Why doesn't he do it? Why isn't he stern with us? Why isn't he harsh with us? Why does he forgive us? Why does he forget our sins? Because he's entered into a contract with us, and he keeps it. See, and that's what we have happening here. He's a God who's gracious toward the people that he has created. And then the third reason why we're to praise him and thank him is because his truth endures for all generations. He doesn't lie. He keeps his word. He keeps his contract. His word is his bond, if you want to use that old phrase. Okay? You can rely on the promises. You can rely on the contract that he has made with you. You can trust his word. His truth endures for all generations. So, the trouble is, now if that's true, and I think it is, I think he's good, I think his mercy is everlasting, and his truth endures for all generations, he keeps his promises. The trouble is not with God's word, or with God's character. He is good, and there's no trouble with his word. His word is perfect, and his word is pure. The trouble is we don't take him with his word. It's a big problem. Or, when we read his word, we misinterpret his word. And we think he's supposed to do this for us, and his word really doesn't say it. We misinterpret the word. That's why I think it's absolutely essential to go verse by verse through the scriptures and explain exactly what it means so there can be no reason of doubt on what God means. And once you understand what he means, then you can trust his word. How 
trustworthy is it? How long will he keep his word? Look what it says. His truth endures for what? Ever, for all generations. Literally, ages, age to age. From age to age. Its truth is inexhaustible. Or as Dr. Criswell used to say, world without end. His word is immutable. It never changes. And those of us who know that the Lord is God because we've experienced His hand in our lives can trust His word again. Because He's done it before and He'll do it again. He is worthy to be served. He's worthy to be praised. You know, worthy to be sung. Now, the second song, Psalm 117. See if you don't think this goes with me. In fact, I don't even think I have to say anything. One seventeen. Does this sound familiar? <laughs> Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, all you nations. The same thing that the other song says. Why are we to do it? Listen, laud him, all you people. Praise him, all you people. For his mercy, for he is merciful. His merciful kindness is great toward us. And the truth of the Lord does what? The Lord is forever. Praise the Lord. Now, I'm not going to go over that one in a few weeks. 117. I've just done 117. I've explained 117 in light of 100. Does that make sense? Okay. So 100 tells us what, why we should worship and why we should serve God, why we should sing to him. Because we know certain things about God. And why we should enter his gates with a certain attitude, gladness, and with thanksgiving on the way. Because of God's character, he's good because his word is truthful and endures for all the world. In one sense, I believe that Psalm 100 has a prophetic bent to it. In other words, I think it points to something beyond itself. I think it, it's a picture of what is going to happen when God's kingdom comes on the earth. And guess what's going to happen? All the nations are going to heed this call. And they're going to worship God. So I want to close by turning you to the last book of the Bible, Revelation 7. And uh, just I'll just read a couple of these verses and see if this doesn't sound like a fulfillment of Psalm 100. Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7. Okay, look at verse 9. Revelation chapter 7 and verse 9. Okay. Revelation 7 verse 9. John the Revelator says, And after these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number. Look at this. Of all the nations, see? tribes and people's tongues, Standing before the throne, look, they've entered in. They're standing before the throne, before the lamb clothed, with white robes, with palm branches in their hands. They're crying with a loud voice. There's the shout. See, there's the shout saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And that God who's on the throne is the Lord. So we see that. And then look over at verse 13. Then one, and then one of the elders sang to, said to me, who are these who are arrayed in white robes? This is verse 13. And where did they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. 
So he said, well, these are the ones who've come out of the great tribulation. And they washed their robes and they made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God. And they do what? <coughs> Serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. And it goes on and says, he'll wipe away all their tears and so forth. And so there's a sense in which the future kingdom is the fulfillment of the psalm which depicts all the nations being called to worship God along with the nation of Israel. Okay, next week. Second week in our Psalms of the Summer, Psalm 101. Lord, thank you for your word. We look at this and we realize how far we fall short in our worship. This morning in church, there was a lot of shouting. There was a lot of singing. The question is, Lord, will there be a lot of serving? Will we who, who raised our voice now go out and serve the Lord? Will we thank you? Will we have an attitude of gratitude, realizing that the good things that have come into our lives, the gifts, the surprises, the benefits that we've received are from your hand because you are a covenant-keeping God who cares for your people. Oh, Lord, help us to take not only these lessons to heart, but may this be our song of praise. In Christ's name, amen.